Okay, well this is um, an exciting time, but it is the last of our teaching evenings. Oh, it's been good, hasn't it? We've really enjoyed it. Um, I know a few of you are trying to arrange to meet next week for uh, the Steps to Freedom process, which you, you missed out on. But other than that, we're kind of pretty done. Um, but I'll say a bit more after my two talks about how we go forward and uh, uh, the like from here. So this, this one is session number 12. You'll found, find it, I think, in your books on page... 96 that's where we're going to kick off and this one's called where are you heading and uh, both these talks like last week really form our package our last package of teaching which is designed really for post the steps to freedom in christ the idea is that through the steps to freedom in christ you've taken hold of your freedom that is already yours um and now you're uh propelled by that um moving towards maturity growing in character uh, and uh, in your relationship with, with God unhindered. Uh, and this is part of that, that package of teaching, if you like. So number 12, where are you heading? You know, one year from now, how will you judge how well you've done in your Christian walk when you look back over these 12 months to come? What will enable you to say, wow, it's been a great year, it's been a good year? Well, in this session, what we're going to do is work out what God wants us to achieve in our lives. If you like, what are the God-given goals? And we're also going to make a distinction between those and godly desires. And that might sound quite similar at the moment, but we'll, we'll bring some distinction. It's an important distinction as we go. I don't know if you've heard of a famous uh, English Bible teacher called Dr. John Stott. Um, you may or may not have. Anyhow, he, he ended up with an interesting comment in his last public address that he gave at the age of 87 after many decades of uh, quite high-profile Christian teaching. He said this, The question which perplexed me as a younger Christian was this, What is God's purpose for my life? That used to puzzle me. Now, I'm assuming, uh, it's probably safe to assume, that all of us want to uh, live our lives in a way that glorifies God. But what does that actually mean in the nitty-gritty of everyday life? That's the big question. Now, we're probably similar in that, like the rest of the world, we're trying to meet certain goals for happiness, for fulfilment, success, for satisfaction, for fun and for peace, and so on. Those are probably quite common goals. And we, like any individual, will try and make plans and do all that we can to achieve uh, those particular goals. Please forgive me, I've only just started. Well, in terms of the material here and the freedom in Christ definition, this is what I mean by goals. They're those things, those outcomes, those results, which we believe are fundamental to how we think about ourselves in terms of our worth, in terms of our fulfilment. They're the kind of goals that we measure ourselves against. And if we don't achieve them, achieve them, then they leave us feeling inadequate and inferior and we feel like a failure. So they're those types of goals. They're closely aligned to the core of our being and how we feel about ourselves. So by goals in this context, I'm not referring to all the other objectives you might have in life, like um, watching the second half of the football or, no, uh, or um, getting to work on time or I'm making sure I don't fall asleep during Tim's Freedom in Christ talk, or whatever it might be. You know, they're, they're objectives in life, and they may be valid, but they're not those core ones. You, if you don't quite achieve them, you shrug it off. Oh, well, missed it, I'll try harder next time. You know, there are those types of objectives, but there are core goals that influence how we feel about ourselves. 
And our emotions are, if you like, are the designed feedback system, the feedback loop we've got within us to grab our attention so that we can check whether where we're heading in life is valid or not. And that's how, a good way of, I think, viewing our emotions. So, for example, if we feel angry, anxious or depressed, they're like big red warning lights on the dashboard of our lives, alerting us to the possibility that we're working towards a faulty goal in life or that we've got some wrong belief system behind the goals that we're uh, pursuing. Hi, Robin, do sit down. Yeah, we've only just started. Page 96, roughly. So imagine this. Uh, I've got uh, a teenager and one up-and-coming teenager. Suppose one of them comes to me and she wants to go to a rock concert because all her mates are going to a rock concert or a pop concert, whatever you call it this day and age. And um, to her, she's under a lot of peer pressure to go to this. She may believe that her very happiness depends on whether or not I, as her parent, allow her to go to this concert. Now, she might be uncertain as to how I would respond, but she's probably pessimistic. At that point, she's likely to be anxious. If, uh, as will probably be the case, I say, no, you can't go, as she suspected, she then may become angry because her goal connected to her happiness has been blocked. And she will try and bargain with me and she'll try and plead with me. She's been doing that since she was knee high, since she could start to talk, so no doubt she will try that. But there'll come a point where she realises that that's it, no's a no, there's no, no chance of persuading Dad otherwise. Well, at that point, she may then get depressed. And why is that? Because her goal was blocked, but is now impossible. It's unachievable. It cannot be reached. So let's just break down those steps uh, as we look through these three emotions of uh, anger, um, anxiety and depression. When something you do results in you feeling angry, it's usually because someone or something has blocked your goal. It's prevented you from accomplishing what you wanted to do. So for example, how do you feel in a traffic jam when you're already late for an important meeting? Oh, that's that kind of emotion, isn't it? So your goal in life could be to have a loving, harmonious Christian family. That could be your goal. It might not be everyone's goal, but some would have that goal. It sounds great. The challenge with it is it depends on other people. You need a wife. And you need a wife who wants to be your wife, or a husband who wants to be a husband. You need to be able to have children. You need to have children who comply to your picture of a perfect, harmonious, happy Christian family. And if your whole sense of worth and identity becomes dependent on that goal, you're very much reliant on other people and how they respond. And you might find, actually, when they don't behave as you expect or want, that you start to fall apart every time your spouse or your children fail to live up to this image that you've got. The problem is, you see, that that goal is very much linked to your sense of worth about yourself. But that, in turn, is very much dependent on other people and their actions. When somebody blocks your goal and you respond in an outburst of anger, that is a big red warning light that should prompt you to look at your goals. Where are you heading in life? And are they the right goals that I should have? Look at anxiety. Anxiety is also a red warning light on the dashboard of your life um, because it highlights that achieving your goals feels uncertain. That's what it's highlighting. You're hoping something's going to happen, but you have no guarantee that it's going to happen. You can control perhaps some of the factors that influence that goal, but you can't control all of it. It's out of your control. 
So, for example, if you've come to believe that your sense of self-worth is dependent on financial success, for example, then you will probably suffer from anxiety. Why? Because you've got no guarantee that you're going to be able to earn the money you want to earn, enough to satisfy you. But also, even if you do, as the financial world as it is, it's never safe, is it? You can never guarantee it's going to be there tomorrow. It hasn't vanished under some uh, economic crash. And let's look at depression. Sometimes an uncertain goal, we're on 97 I think now, slips even further, like that teenager with a rock concert, to the point where now it appears impossible. At that point, the anxiety can turn into depression. And again, depression is a red warning light in your life. That perhaps even if your goal is spiritual or noble or good, nevertheless it now is becoming possible and it feels impossible. You feel hopeless and helpless in trying to achieve it. So, for example, some might base their whole sense of worth and success as a Christian on whether a loved one comes to know Jesus or whether a sickness amongst somebody in their family, etc., is, is miraculously healed. That could be your link to your sense of worth. And you might pray and you might witness and you might do everything you possibly can and to, towards that aim, but nothing appears to work. Your efforts are futile, your faith is faltering and you fall into a depression because your goal seems impossible, which in turn might ironically make it even more harder to achieve. It is, of course, right to want loved ones to be saved. It is, of course, right to pray for people to be healed. Why would we not do that? But when it becomes the goal to the extent that it's the basis of your sense of worth, you set yourself up for problems. Because the outcome is beyond your ability. It's actually also beyond your right to control it. Witnessing, for example, is sharing our faith, of course it is, in the power of the Holy Spirit, but then it's leaving the results to God. Praying for the sick is praying diligently for the sick in the power of the Holy Spirit, but the result is up to God. And we can't save anyone, we can't heal anyone. And depression often shows that you're desperately clinging on to an unhealthy goal that you have little or no chance of achieving. Now, of course, I don't know much about um, medical things. I don't know much about depression either. But I'm told that, of course, depression can be for other reasons. It can be a biochemical reason in some cases. So I'm told bipolar disorder does have a clear physical root. I'm told that hormones can play a very genuine part in it all. But for many, maybe even the majority of depression cases around the world, um, there isn't an overriding physical cause. There may be a physical effect, but not a physical cause. And often depression is rooted in a sense of hopelessness or helplessness, often because you have a goal that you believe is critical to your self-worth, but it's become unachievable. It's interesting, Steve Goss, who put this material together uh, for Freedom in Christ, he talks about somebody he came across who had clinical depression. And he just relays his story, so I'll relay it on to you as well. The diagnosis, he, he guessed, was right. This guy had clinical depression. And in some sense, it had private, provided the guy with some relief that it had this kind of diagnosis. 
But it seemed to Steve that he'd taken that diagnosis and got it wrapped up into his identity as a person. If you like, in thinking of himself as clinically depressed, it became for this guy something inevitable, something that couldn't change. But of course, clinical depression, as I understand it, doesn't imply that the depression is inevitable. It's just that it's severe. Yeah, you've got it. <laughs> it's depression, all right. It's there, what you've got, but it's not an inevitable result. It was fairly clear to Steve in this case that the depression for this guy, in this particular scenario, was rooted in a past experience that had taught him to believe he was hopeless and helpless, which wasn't, in fact, for him the case. And so Steve was very confident that as this guy learned to replace those lies with truth, that he could have every expectation of coming out of that depression. Now, all things in God are possible. He is the God of all hope. Let me ask you a question. How do we respond when someone or something threatens our goals? How do we respond to that? Now, we can either manipulate the circumstances, we can try and control the people, or we can change our goal and move it to be in line with God's goal for our lives. That's our choice. We can manipulate, control, or we can move it into line with God. Suppose, for example, this parent that I keep coming back to, uh, maybe it's me, I be uh, believes that their sense of worth depends on how well their children turn out. I know you haven't all got children, but just imagine the scenario. And my goal becomes raising solid Christians, or their goal. Ooh, I'm talking about the first person. Um, they want their children to become, you know, pillars of the society, and doctors and lawyers and high-powered jobs. So they want to also see them grow in their faith and take on leadership positions in church and have ministries that reach the kingdom. But lo and behold, their behaviour doesn't quite match up to what they're hoping for. What will happen there is that parent will be heading for a collision. Because their children, as they grow up, want freedom. But this parent will feel ever-increasing need to control their behaviour because their, behaviors their, their well-being as a parent is dependent on their children's behaviour. But in fact, of course, we know that parenting is an 18-year process of just letting go. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit is not child control, but it is self-control. Ask you another question. Uh, I think we're at the top of page 98 if you're following it in your books. Can God's goals for your life be blocked, uncertain, or impossible? Does God give those kind of goals for us? An example. Think of Mary. God seemingly had an impossible goal for this young girl. An angel came to her said, Mary, you're going to bear a son. While you're still a virgin, and he will, in fact, save the world. You know, to us it could sound, to anyone an impossible, pretty unlikely goal. Well, she asked God about it, an angel came back and said, you know, nothing is impossible for God. And you can rest assured that no circumstance, no person can stop you achieving God's purpose for your life. Nothing. God-given goals are never impossible. They're never uncertain they're never blockable god if you like would never say you know what mate i've got something for you to do uh, now i know you're not going to be able to do it but give it your best shot that's not god's style is it it's like me saying to again one of my girls uh hannah could you mow the lawn please 
Oh, by the way, I've just scattered rocks and boulders all over the garden. Uh, oh, and by the way, the motor and the lawnmower doesn't work and the blades are blown. But go, give it your best shot, girl, that's it. But that's not God's style, and hopefully it's not mine <coughs> either. God's goals for you are possible, they are certain, and they are achievable. Therefore, no God-given goal can be dependent on anybody else or any other set of circumstances that you have no right or ability to control. That wouldn't make sense. So if you are finding yourself feeling angry consistently, anxious consistently or regularly depressed, it's time to look at the goals of your life. Bring them in to line with God's. just want to bring a bit of clarity about this difference between a goal and a godly desire that the Freedom in Christ uh, material helps us with. If we realise we've been working towards a goal that's dependent on other people or circumstances that we can't control, but it still feels like it's a good goal, then we don't need to abandon it, but what we need to do is downgrade it. In our thinking, from a goal, which is linked to our sense of self-worth, that we have no right or ability to control, to a godly desire. Subtle, but an important distinction. The only person you see that can block a godly goal or make it uncertain or impossible is you. But a godly desire are those things that does depend on other people or events or circumstances which you have no right or ability to control. So the crucial difference is that you can't base your success or your sense of worth on your desires, no matter how godly they are, because you can't control them. And we'll struggle with anger and anxiety and depression when we elevate those desires to a goal in our minds. Then when a desire isn't met, we'll be faced with disappointment. Now life is full of disappointments, that is the reality, and we will have to learn, if we haven't already, to live with them. But you know, it's a lot easier dealing with anger, anxiety and depression um, of goals based on... Sorry, so, so it's a lot easier dealing with them with their godly desires than dealing with them if they're goals that therefore link to these emotions. So question three for you. What is God's goal for us? Tim, I thought you'd never get around to it. Well, page 99. And actually for this section... We're going to read a bit of scripture. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, 3 to 10. We'll just read the first bit first. It's really helpful. If you want to do anything afterwards, go away, I suggest, and look over this passage some more. So just listen to the first few verses from verse 3, 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So just unpicking that a little bit, in verse 3, Peter, as we've already looked at over this course, tells us that we start with everything we need for life and for godliness. In verse 4, kind of midway through verse 4, we find that we share in God's divine nature. 
We're made holy because of who we are in Christ. We're saints, each of us, who have put our trust in Jesus. So let's be clear then. Working out God's overriding goal for your life and then fulfilling it has nothing to do with being or becoming acceptable to him. If you're a Christian, you are already pleasing to him. It's got nothing to do with you working for your salvation. But, subtle but important difference, it has everything to do with you working out your salvation. So the starting point is the amazing change that took place the moment you became a Christian. As it says, again at the end of verse 4 there, we have escaped the corruption of the world. We no longer have to give in to sin, in other words. We can choose, as we've been looking at over these weeks, every day we can choose to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. We are free. We really are free. Free to choose, just as Adam and Eve were before the fall. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And we can make genuine choices to walk in that freedom and become the person that God created us to be. And no one and nothing can stop it. So let's look on in verse 5 and 7. You'll see, as I read it out there, the whole list of attributes. But how does it tell us about God's goal for our life? Well, Peter clearly states that it starts with faith. Faith is simply believing to bring our belief system, if you like, into line with what we, what is in fact true, how things really are, and based, of course, on God's word. Then, he's saying, what we're doing is we're adding to that, we're building, we're making every effort to increment this with these character attributes. We've got goodness We've got knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. You see, God's primary, numero uno, number one goal for you is not so much about what you do. It isn't. It's all about what you're like. It's your character. God's goal for every Christian is that we become more and more like Jesus in his character. And the great news is that nobody and nothing can keep you from that. Except yourself. Just finishing off that quote from Dr. John Stott, the famous or uh, relatively famous preacher from a previous decades. He says this, uh, age 87, I want to share with you where my mind has come to rest as I approach the end of my pilgrimage on earth. God wants his people to become like Christ. Christ-likeness is the will of God for the people of God. Let me just read a couple more verses. I just closed my Bible. That was a bit foolish. From 2 Peter chapter 1. Just a couple of more verses beyond. 8 to 10. 2 Peter's one of those unforgiving books, isn't it? It's so thin, if you don't quite know where it is, you never find it. Mm. Here it is, um, verse 8. For if you possess these qualities, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So Christians who are committed to God's goal for their character 
uh, sorry, those Christians who are not committed to God's goals for their character progression tend to fall. Verse 9 says that they have forgotten that they've already been cleansed from past sins. In other words, they've forgotten already who they are in Christ. And Peter's antidote here is just one thing. The best thing you can do is just remember. Go back and look what Christ has done for you. And in part, that's what the early sessions of Freedom in Christ were encouraging us to do. That's what some of these postcards, you can take them away, last chance saloon tonight, help us to do. To identify and remember, bring back to mind who we are in Christ. Now going back to that parent who wants that happy, harmonious family, it is a godly desire. Because you can't guarantee that it's going to happen. And if that parent were to change their goal to this, I want to become the wife and mother, or I want to become the husband and the father that God wants me to be, then that's a great goal. That's elevated it from a desire to a goal because it's expressed completely differently. No one can block that goal. Not a children, not a spouse, not his children or his spouse. No one can block that goal apart from themselves. Now that parent may object, well what if my husband, my other half, my partner, what if they have a midlife crisis? Perhaps my children rebel. Well, problems like that aren't blocking that parent's goal to be the spouse, the parent that God has called them to be. Just to finish off, let's look at page 100 there. Difficulties help us toward the goal. Difficult circumstances don't need to stop you becoming the person God wants you to be. Paul says it in Romans 5, 3-4. He says that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that it produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. It's a common theme. James says pretty much the same thing in his own words in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Again, there it is. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Persevering through difficulties results in improved character. Trials can reveal wrong goals and help us become more mature and more like Jesus. A defeated husband or wife might say, my marriage is hopeless, and then try and solve the problem themselves by changing partners. Others might feel their church, their job perhaps, is hopeless and they move on, only to discover that their new job or their new church is just as hopeless. What should you do? Well, hang on in there. Maybe grow up. Those difficult situations may well be helping you achieve God's goal for your life. That's the truth of it. That's what Paul, James, everyone else there is saying. There are legitimate times, of course, to change a job. I've done it a couple of times. There are legitimate circumstances even for changing church. But if you're just running from your immaturity, it will follow you wherever you go. It's usually in those difficult times of testing that have brought about the maturity that makes life meaningful. Yes, we need those occasional mountaintop experiences in God of course we do but you know the thing about mountains is you'll find the fertile soil in the valley Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 the goal of our instruction is love love is the character of God 
Because God is love. And if you make godly character your primary goal in life, then the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in your life. And that will be like love. Anger will give way to patience. Anxiety will give way to peace. And depression will give way to joy. Last question. So how will you judge how well you've done in your Christian walk in a year's time from today? Maybe we should reconvene. Okay. Um, are you able now and over these days to align your goals with God's goal? God's goal that you will grow in character. And the measuring stick against that will now be the fruit of the Spirit. I hope that come the end of this course you're increasingly likely to say, you know, I want to, more than anything, become the person that God wants me to be. And I hope increasingly you're also able to say, you know, and nothing and nobody can stop me doing that. Because that's the truth. An interesting thing as well happens when you do this. A woman who decides to be the wife and mum God wants her to be may well find that it has a positive impact on her family. No guarantee, but it may just do that. A church who decides that their primary goal is to become the church God wants them to be may just find that they reach their community for Christ. Because if we cooperate with God, I think we can expect our life to bear much fruit. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. We'll stop there. Our first pause. Stop there.